right, preschool parents. Welcome back to Raise Ready Kids, where month by month you master the strategies you need to raise kids with the knowledge, skills, character, and purpose they need to thrive. I'm Bill Jackson, founder of Raise Ready Kids, and your host this month. Did you get a good night's sleep last night? I hope so. A good night's sleep is a beautiful thing. It feels so much better to move through the day when you're well-rested. In the weeks before I created this audio briefing, I wasn't sleeping so well. My college-age daughter said to me, You seem kind of low, Dad. Indeed, I wasn't feeling great. I'm sleeping better now after making a few changes to my bedtime routine, and I'm feeling more energetic and present. I'm still working on getting back to sleep when I wake up in the middle of the night, but I'm headed in the right direction. I think I eat pretty well, but I could do better. I'm pretty good with vegetables, but I certainly could eat more fruit. I go through periods when I eat too much sugary and fatty foods, chocolate, potato chips, ice cream. I love ice cream. But I usually manage to also eat plenty of salads and vegetables. Just as I feel so much better when I sleep well, I also feel so much better when I eat well. Sleep and nutrition are two of the foundations of human well-being. For many of us, one of these is challenging at any given moment. If you're like me, you recognize that getting your house in order with these two areas helps with all other aspects of life, too. We're better as parents, we're better at work, and we're better with our relationships when we're sleeping and eating well. We feel better, too. And we're also parents. At the same time, we may struggle with one or both of these issues. We have kids who may not be getting enough sleep and or who may be eating too much junk food. We've got to help our kids even as we're trying to help ourselves preschool parents. Today we're going to explore these two issues and introduce the Raise Ready Kids Sleep Tight, Eat Right strategy. We're not seeking perfection, not going to happen anytime soon. Rather, we're looking for progress that will make your family's life better. Although we'll be talking mostly about kids, you can use many of these ideas for your own benefit as well. Let's focus on the first part, sleep tight, starting with the question, how much sleep does your child need? In 2015, the National Sleep Foundation convened a panel of 18 experts to review the evidence and answer the question, how much sleep do children and adults really need? The conclusion? Preschoolers need 10 to 13 hours per night. School-age kids need 9 to 11. Teenagers, 8 to 10. And adults, 7 to 9. 10 to 13 hours for preschoolers is a big range, and it reflects another fundamental finding from sleep research people's sleep needs vary dramatically. What matters is that you are getting enough sleep for you and your child is getting enough sleep for them. As an adult, it's pretty simple to assess whether you're sleeping enough. If you feel tired, if you're yawning and feeling lethargic, you need more. It's a little harder with preschoolers. It's hard to tell if they feel tired and sometimes they get hyper rather than lethargic when they're short of sleep. Behavior, rather than yawning or other signs of tiredness, is probably a better guide to whether your child is sleeping enough. If your child is cranky a lot of the time, they need more sleep. How long they take to go to sleep is another clue. A child who conks out immediately when their head hits the pillow is probably not getting enough sleep. On the other hand, a child who takes an hour to fall asleep may be in bed for too long. Another clue. How much longer does your preschooler sleep on days when they're free to sleep as late as they want? If they sleep an extra two hours when you let them, they are probably not getting enough sleep. Once you've figured out how long your child needs to sleep, 
do everything possible to schedule your life to enable your child to get that much. If it turns out your preschooler needs 10 to 11 hours and you have to start the morning routine at 6.30, then they should be in bed by 8. If they need 12 to 13 hours, well, that's probably difficult to manage if you have to get up at 6.30. Perhaps there's a way to arrange things so they can get up a little later, 7 or 7.30? And perhaps you can arrange your evening so they can get to bed by 7 or 7.30. You're likely spending a fair amount of time supporting your child's learning, doing things like reading to them, singing the alphabet song, explaining things as you move through the world, and answering their many, many questions. This is all fantastic. But if you're doing all these things while your child is not getting enough sleep, they won't be able to make the best out of all these experiences. Sleep is involved in the consolidation of memories and being sleep deprived reduces your child's ability to learn. Of course, lack of sleep also sours their mood, making them less likely to be able to interact positively with you and others. So to the extent possible, build your family calendar around your child's and your sleep needs. Do your best to get home at an hour that leaves time for the routines that come before bedtime that your child needs. If bedtime has to be later because of your work schedule or household commotion, explore whether there might be a way to let your child sleep longer in the morning. It's not always possible, but do what you can to help your child get the sleep they need. And under no circumstances should your child decide when they will go to sleep. Four-year-olds are completely incapable of making good decisions about their bedtime. Once you've figured out your child's sleep schedule, the next step is to develop rituals that prepare your child for sleep and stick with them. To help your child and yourself fall asleep, establish a predictable, calming routine. Many parents read to their children immediately before bed, but you can also have a quiet discussion about the day or listen to some music together. Your child should know the steps of the routine and lead the two of you through it. For example, get into pajamas, brush teeth, and choose a book. You should talk with your child about what will happen. For example, how many stories you will read, and then stick to the plan. Your routine should take place in your child's bedroom, so they associate the good feelings of this wind-down time with the place they will sleep. No roughhousing during the wind-down period. Save that for the morning. Stay away from electronic devices for the final hour of the day, because the blue light emitted by these devices suppresses melatonin, a hormone that regulates the human sleep-wake cycle. Lower levels of yellow-colored light is best. Also, the ideal sleeping temperature is 60 to 66 degrees. Sleep gets harder when the temperature rises above 75 or below 54. If your child is having trouble falling asleep, think about how to make your ritual even more calming. You could try a little warm milk or chamomile tea. Try sharing a few things you and your child are each grateful for, a wonderful way to let go of the day on a positive note. You could try simple meditation with your child, for example, focusing on your breath for just a minute or two. Or you could bring lavender into your child's bedroom, which studies show helps people relax by slowing the heart rate, decreasing blood pressure, and lowering skin temperature. If you're dealing with more serious sleeping problems, I recommend the book Solve Your Child's Sleep Problems by Richard Ferber. A leading expert on children's sleep, widely known for his approach to helping babies learn to fall asleep on their own, Ferber has written a comprehensive guide that addresses pretty much every kind of sleep-related problem out there. Time to move on to nutrition, the second part of the sleep-tight, eat-right strategy. Food is a tricky issue for many of us. 
We all have our likes and dislikes and our guilty pleasures and, well, sometimes a lot of straight-up guilt. As for our kids, they can be picky eaters. Let me offer a few thoughts that might help you and your family move in a positive direction. First, nutrition is not an exact science, not even close. From a scientific standpoint, about all you can say with confidence is that it's good to eat lots of fruits and vegetables, and it's bad to eat and drink lots of added sugars like those found in candy and soda. A diet rich in fruits and vegetables lays the foundation for lifelong health by promoting heart health, reducing blood pressure, and keeping blood sugar in check. On the other hand, added sugars promote weight gain, increase the risk of diabetes, and probably bring a whole host of other negative health impacts. As for the details beyond this, it's hard to say. We all have our preferences, and you may well want to share those preferences with your child. But there's just not a lot of hard, reliable scientific evidence to support eating no meat versus some meat, fewer carbohydrates versus more carbohydrates, or lots of fiber, or you name it. However, there is good evidence that food tastes are formed in childhood and are stable over time. This means that what your child eats now is likely to impact what they like to eat for the rest of their lives. Studies show, for example, that college students like the food they ate as children, and that young girls' preferences for snack foods are pretty steady between the ages of 5 and 11. In addition, research shows that it often takes many exposures for children to develop a liking for particular foods. One study offered red peppers and squash to preschoolers. Initially, the preschoolers rated these vegetables to be somewhere between yucky and just okay. But after six exposures, the average moved to between just okay and yummy. By the end of the experiment, kids were eating way more vegetables by their own choice. Some parents, eager to get their children to eat healthier foods, try bribing them. You can have your macaroni and cheese after you have your vegetables. Perhaps not surprisingly, this framing leads kids to think of vegetables as even less desirable than they might already be thinking, which works against the long-term goal of getting kids to like foods that are good for them. On the other hand, occasional rewards for trying new foods may make sense, since getting that initial exposure is the first step toward potentially liking a particular food. With all this in mind, let me offer you a few thoughts about how you can help your child and family move toward better eating habits. First, don't keep many sugary snacks or drinks in the house. As the Center for Disease Control says, reducing the availability of high fat and high sugar or salty snacks can help your children develop healthy eating habits. Only allow your children to eat these foods rarely so they will truly be treats. To put it another way, you can't eat lots of the wrong kinds of foods if you don't have them in your home. If you yourself eat and drink a fair number of sugary snacks or drinks, well, this is a family project. On the other hand, I would not suggest that you absolutely forbid any particular kind of food. Research shows that children will gravitate toward forbidden foods when allowed to have them, even if they didn't initially prefer them. Kids are like adults. They become more interested in things they're told they can't have. The best way to handle candy, soda, and other foods high in added sugars is to not have much of it around the house in the first place. Second, do provide lots of fruits and vegetables for snacks, with dips as needed. Again, following the mantra that people tend to do what's easy for them, buy plenty of fruits and vegetables and put them out on the counter at snack time. Don't make a big fuss about eating your fruits and vegetables. Just make fruits and vegetables available, 
eat some yourself, and invite your child to join you. A word on dips. As children get a little older, repeated exposure to new foods may not work as well, especially with bitter vegetables like Brussels sprouts. But you can make vegetables more attractive by serving them with some dip, hummus, ranch dressing, peanut butter, or flavored cream cheese. Studies have shown that dips are good for increasing children's liking of vegetables so that eventually they come to like the vegetable even without the dip. Third, in general, feed your children what you eat, especially when you're having dinner together. Remember what we said about kids needing many exposures to new foods before they like them. The best way to provide that exposure is naturally by inviting them to eat the food you eat. If you're serving an entree that is probably going to be more popular than the vegetables you're also serving, consider serving the vegetables first and everyone eats them together when everyone is the hungriest. Or if your children have a way of devouring the pasta while resisting the vegetables, offer a smaller portion of pasta and a larger portion of vegetables for everyone. As with many things, the best approach to helping your child develop good eating habits is to invite and support them to join you in your own eating habits. Make healthy eating your default approach and your children will slowly but surely join the club. Finally, I have a suggestion for you to consider when this approach is not working, at least not on a particular evening. When your child refuses to eat the dinner put down in front of them, you could agree to make them something else. Out come the chicken nuggets. But kids are clever. The problem with this approach is that kids will come to see that the best way to get the food they like best is to refuse to eat the new foods they don't yet like. That's going to work against your goal of introducing kids to a wide range of healthy foods now when their tastes are being formed for life. Alternatively, you could say, I'm sorry you don't like it, but this is what's for dinner, and then hold the line. They don't get anything else. They'll eat tomorrow for sure when they're that much hungrier. This is a reasonable approach as long as kids are not missing multiple meals, and some parents I respect swear by it and get good results. However, it's a little too hardcore for others, and if that's how you feel, I suggest you offer what the food writer Mark Bittman calls a standard backup meal. For example, raw vegetables and hummus. You want your standard backup to be something that you're comfortable having your kids eat, but not something they like so much that they'll prefer it to many other options. Perhaps your children choose it every few weeks when something shows up on the dinner table that really challenges them. In my experience, the standard backup is an option that everyone can live with. Those who feel strongly that kids should eat what's served to them, and those who don't want children to suffer too much as they're still developing their food preferences. That's a wrap for today's Raise Ready Kids strategy, Sleep Tight, Eat Right. In the Sleep Tight department, Figure out how much sleep your child needs and then do everything possible to schedule your life to enable your child to get that much sleep. Then develop rituals that prepare your child for sleep and stick with them. In the eat right department, don't keep many sugary snacks and drinks around the house. Do provide lots of fruits and vegetables for snacks with dips as needed. Feed your children what you eat, especially when you're having dinner together and try offering a standard backup meal when your child resists what's being served. When you help your child sleep tight and eat right, you're doing one of the most important things you can do to support your child's teacher in school. Your child's ability to pay attention and absorb new information depends particularly on their sleep. Get sleep and nutrition right, and many other aspects of life will be easier and more rewarding for you and your child, now and long into the future. Mm -hmm.